The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so <clears throat> let us carry on where we left off, uh, so just continue with the uh, questions. Uh, so let's see what happens. Uh, Dear Bhante, thank you for your teachings. Uh, question, what part uh, do, does resolution aditana have in assisting the practice? Um, I don't think all that much. <laughs> I think the uh, aditana, in the, the way it is used in the suttas, is often used in the sense of uh, attaching to things. It has almost like a negative connotation in the suttas. Uh, it is later on, it comes becomes a factor in the bodhisattva path because you have the aditana parami, which is like the perfection of uh, resolution or aditana. But it's not really found so much in early Buddhism in the suttas. The Buddha doesn't usually use that word very much. Uh, what matters the most, I think, more than aditana is actually just right view and right understanding. Uh, and so the idea of right view, you know, standing as it does at the very beginning uh, of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, yeah, being the foundation for the whole practice, uh, obviously is very important. And that kind of gives you a natural aditana because you become very concerned about practicing in the right way. You understand the importance of it, uh, you understand how it works, and etc., etc. And then you commit uh, and you persevere because of that. You don't persevere because you make an aditana. That aditana really only works if you have right view because that is what drives uh, these things. Uh. So it's more important to make it a natural thing. Uh. And if it is natural in this way, then you don't have to apply so much willpower. Uh. It becomes easier. It arises out of wisdom and understanding instead of arising out of forcing yourself, uh, which is often what happens if you make an aditana. Yeah? And uh, so uh, I think that is a better way of doing things rather than pushing yourself and trying to kind of... Uh, Resolve. I'm going to do it this way. It's like New Year's resolutions. Yeah, they don't usually work. <laughs> Is that what they say? People have New Year's resolutions, and after a couple of weeks, it actually doesn't work because it's just uh, that's not how the mind works. Usually, uh, it's more about um, having a, an easier relationship with these things. Uh, uh, I think is more usually more is better, but maybe it varies a bit with. Uh, personality, maybe some people can actually work with these things, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, there is no absolute rights or wrongs with these things. Uh, but that's the way it seems to me. Uh. So, uh, okay, there you are. Dear Ajahn, in our uh, company yearly review, we often require to give feedbacks to team members and peers at least three things that they have done well and three improvement points. Uh, I always struggle to give improvement points. It's like fault finding in people. Uh, uh, what is your suggestion with this? Okay, so what you do is you say this person is really great, uh, but perhaps they can become even greater. Uh, yeah, so they are marvelous already. They've got so much metta and so much kindness. Uh, but uh, you know, if they practice really hard, maybe they can become even kinder. Something like that, yeah. And it's the same thing with us. We often appreciate our own strengths. Uh, we appreciate ourselves. We are kind to ourselves. Uh, 
But we also realize that there is further to go. We haven't reached the peak yet of these things. Uh, so it's like a pr appreciation, but understanding maybe the limits of where we are, and so we can go even further. Uh, so uh, maybe that is a way you can do it. Yeah, appreciation, but also uh, you know understanding that if people haven't reached that peak yet, maybe uh, that might be one way of doing it. Uh, perhaps. Venerable Nisarno, do you have any suggestions for this? Sir? <laughs> Education, the system, and the, the way the society is, is focused is train, trains us to look at what could be better, you know, look at the faults actually. We're very good at seeing what's missing, what needs to be upgraded, but we're not so good at looking at the strengths that we have. And as um, Bhante is talking about, building on those. So, you know, with people in the, in the company, you know, you can see the strengths that individuals have, you know, whether it be people skills, whether they're very good at their work, their particular type of work. So looking, looking um, more at what, as Bhante is pointing out, you know, the, uh, the strengths people have. But the fault finding comes very easily, too easily for us. And were it only for other people, that would be fine. <laughs> but we do it to ourselves too. So uh, this is uh, something uh, to turn our our um, uh, our gaze around, and and perhaps come from uh, you know maybe start with a base of meta first of all to, to to then look at the people we work with, and then see their strengths rather than coming from the more um, you know the more worldly sense of you know, the company's view of what they want to accomplish and how they want to accomplish it, seeing what the individual, what their strengths are and where they can build on those strengths. And of course, that will be of benefit for the company, the business as well. So that's uh, just my suggestion. Fault finding, improving, is very natural to us. <laughs> the other side, we have to turn the mind the other way. Then we can see those things in other people. Because meta is obviously the opposite of fault finding. We're seeing what's good in them, what's what's uh, and what they can build on. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so fault finding comes very naturally. So this this person here is really they are special already. Yeah, and they can't have a hard time finding faults. That's actually maybe that's really a, a good sign. Yeah, you don't want to don't want to find faults. So. Maybe you should just be really happy with yourself that you are doing so well. You know, <laughs> you have a hard time finding faults. So that's good. Huh? But uh, you know, one of the other things is that um, when you see faults in other people, it is not necessarily fault finding always. It depends how you deal with that. Huh? You can see people's mistakes. You can see people suffering, and you can have compassion for them. Huh? And when you do that, it is not necessarily a negative thing. Yeah? Uh, so it depends on what kind of emotions and what kind of intentions you bring to that uh, seeing the faults. Uh, yeah, if someone is uh, making a mistake, well, they are making a mistake. Yeah, you can't really you, you can't sweep that under the carpet and pretend it isn't there. Uh, if someone claims to be an arrogant but they are greedy, uh, or they claim to be a, a non-returner and they are angry, then you should see what's there. Otherwise, you're going to be taken for a ride. You're going to uh, you're going to get it all wrong basically about what uh, about you know who is and who is uh, spiritual attained and who is not we need to be honest about things uh, but i think the point is that if you do see a fault you have compassion instead of getting angry or having ill will uh, 
So fault finding is actually a very negative state of mind where you you know you you have a sense there's a defilement that goes with that. Uh, but it doesn't have to be defilement. It can also come with compassion. Uh, the Buddha saw faults in people. Yeah, that's why he laid down the rules, uh, the monastic rules. Uh, you can't. You shouldn't be tell, told the monks off. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, yeah, this is not appropriate or whatever. He would do these things, but obviously, it wasn't fault finding in the sense of being a defilement. Uh, so uh, I think uh, sometimes we can, you know, you can get do these things in the right way and the wrong way, uh, perhaps. Okay, it's. Uh, that was yeah. That was good. So uh, let's go on to the next one. Very practical questions. Yeah, this is sort of things that people come across. So that's good. Dear Ajahn, is it true that present single moment is the result of multiple conditioning conditions in various past lives uh, over which we have no control? Many many things. Uh, well, the way you feel right now, yeah, what you are right now, all of that, or, or rather, it's not all of that, that is uh, the sum, yeah, that, that all the things that happened in the past, your past lives or in this life, uh, all of that has built up to what you're experiencing in this moment, uh, yeah, so that your, your mental state basically is determined by uh, all the past things that you have done, uh, so in a sense, that is the like the kamma that you have built up, and the vipaka you're experiencing now is that uh, mental state you have, uh, and uh, so that will then also determine where you go in your next life. Yeah, the mental state we have now kind of continues on, and that's kind of then that wherever you you get reborn will be equivalent to that mental state you have in the moment at the moment you die. Uh. So yes, you you know your present sensation uh, is determined by the past, all the past actions. Uh, cannot escape the past yeah your personality all of these things are determined by past conditioning here and uh, to create a good future uh, then uh, uh, you what you do is you change your intentions uh, you you know sometimes people were talking before about uh, oh i worry about the future uh, and uh, it's much better to, rather than to think about the future and create the future by fantasy or by worrying about it uh, just do the right thing right now. Uh, what is the right attitude in the present moment? Uh, how can I have a more gentle and kind uh, approach to what's happening now? That is how we create a good future. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, will you be able to do a 10 to 15 minute guided meditation uh, uh, session either today or tomorrow or Saturday as time permits. Please very much appreciate your teachings. Sure, we can do some more guided meditations. Uh, yeah, and uh, we haven't really had guided meditation on the program, so I haven't really been doing it, but uh, I guess uh, we can certainly do that. Uh, hi Ajahn, some people easily get things in life uh, and most of the time get lucky. Okay, so maybe, yeah. Some have to work hard and usually luck doesn't work for them. Uh, what's the reason for this? Uh, is this because of karma? Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to judge other people, what's happening in their lives. Uh, yeah, it's easy to think, you look at others, oh, they seem really lucky. Uh, they are really famous or wealthy or whatever. But it's very difficult to judge the overall situation in a person's life. Are they really happy? Uh, are they perhaps depressed? Have they got things under the surface that you can't see? 
what exactly is luck? You know, who is happy? Very difficult to determine. And I think often just ordinary people who go about the ordinary lives, who live well, often they can be quite happy, yeah, in a general sense of well-being. And, uh, you know, people who are very high in, in the social hierarchy and, and whatever, they are not necessarily happy at all. And you see that with people who are very wealthy or famous, they're often trapped in those positions. Imagine being born as a royal. People think it is glamorous to being born as a royal, but I think it must be terrible <laughs> to be born as a royal. It must be one of the worst things. You are trapped. You can't do anything. You are, you are born to be the head of the Church of England. You can't become a... The, imagine the Queen of England becoming a Buddhist nun. That wouldn't work out. That would be problematic. Yeah? <laughs> you can't do that. You're trapped in that position. But if you're an ordinary person, you have more freedom. Yeah? It's kind of strange. We think that money and power gives us freedom, but often it doesn't. And uh, Ajahn Brahm often says that yeah, when you are kind of the boss of the monastery, uh, you have the least freedom uh, because you have the most expectations on you. Uh, you have the most responsibilities. Uh, so you are trapped by those responsibilities to some extent. So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know why is it that some people get lucky. We don't even know if they're lucky, to be honest. Uh, some people work hard. Okay, maybe they're lucky, they get money, but they, when they are depressed and they, you know, what would you rather be, have money and be depressed or be poor and happy. I mean, it's much more important to have a good mind state, isn't it? Much more important. What, how much can money do for you? Almost nothing. It's just... Um, so, um, yeah, and other times you work hard and luck doesn't work for you. And this is one of the things that I was talking about the other day. Remember the story about Ajahn Brahm? He was building up Bodhinyana Monastery and one day the fire comes through and threatens to burn down everything. Of course, it didn't happen, but at one point, Ajahn Brahm thought it would happen. Everything would burn down. And then he had this beautiful idea that uh, I never did anything for the results. Yeah, Don't work for the results. And if you don't work for the results, you will never come into the equation whether you're lucky or not. All that is completely independent, completely irrelevant. Yeah, don't work for the results. Work because it is the right thing to do. Work because it is a spiritual practice. Work because it's kind. Work because you are generous. Work because you have compassion for the world. That is why you should work. And then you can never lose out. Yeah, it can never go wrong. But everything in the world can go wrong. As you say, some people are lucky, some are not. Some people die young, some don't. The world is so inherently uncertain. You can never guarantee the results, uh, but you can guarantee the results of your spiritual practice uh, because that is up to you. It is not up to the world outside. So don't worry about this. So don't, is it because of past karma? It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Uh, even if you have good karma from the past, you don't know how long it's going to last. Suddenly it stops and then you get poor again. It's just the world. Yeah, the world doing weird, weird things. Uh, don't, um, don't think about it in that way. Yeah. Just live well because it is the spiritual path that matters. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, not really answering your question, but um, <laughs> so um, okay. So here we go, dear Anjan. Thanks for discussing the sutta on resentment. Uh, I have been trying to practice that for a long time, but in practice. Uh, we tend to notice bad qualities more, and it is hard to imagine them as being sick, requiring compassion when they are doing so well on a worldly basis. 
and and you are the one who is doing poorly thank you <laughs> well again the forget about the worldly basis yeah it, it, this the world is just uh, it depends on how you were born and how you came into this life and all the kind of cause and conditions and you know forget about that it's irrelevant uh, but uh, if someone if you really are right about someone uh, uh, having bad qualities uh, yeah and uh, they are doing bad uh, then um, um, they have a problem uh, yeah I, I don't know about you but you see people doing bad things uh, and if you look carefully you can see that they are not really happy here uh, there's a problem there they are I don't know there's something sometimes they may be happy even because sometimes people are born into this world with a lot of good uh, good qualities from the past and it takes a long time before the badness kind of overpowers the goodness uh, so sometimes they can do bad and still be happy uh, but generally speaking people who do bad things are not happy in this world uh, and uh, they are heading for a bad place and you know that from your personal experience uh, yeah if you do bad things uh, how do you feel about yourself? You don't feel, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't feel good if I do something bad. Yeah, I feel bad about it usually. <laughs> Try to avoid doing bad things, but you feel bad about it. So, and that is true for other people as well. We work in the same way. So someone who does habitually bad, they really have a problem. They're dragging themselves down. They are, in the long run, they're heading for a, a lot of disappointment and problems. So remember that. And one of the reasons, I think, why it is hard to have compassion for somebody who does bad things uh, is because we tend to forget that it is a non-self. We think that they are doing it on purpose in a certain way. Yeah? They are in charge. They decide to be bad. They decide to be bad towards me. Yeah? But they're not really deciding. They are acting out the conditioning from the past. Uh, yeah, if, try to get your head around that. What that means? It means that you are conditioned and you are trapped in a certain way of doing things. Yeah, you are given a certain set of things that influence you and then out of that comes bad actions and you can't really stop yourself. And very often you want to be kind. You want to do the right thing because you know that kindness leads to happiness. Isn't that true? I think it's kind of, it's so obvious, yeah, that kindness leads to happiness. You feel good about yourself when you are kinder, and you don't when you are not unkinder. And still, even though people know they should be kinder, they can't do it. So what do you do if someone knows that kindness is good, but they can't really act upon it? What do you feel for them? You feel a sense of compassion. They don't know what they're doing, really. Yeah, they think that they're doing something useful. They would maybe even want to be more kind than they can be. Wouldn't you want to be even more kind than you can, than you are? You probably would, right? But you can't. It's like you are trapped by that personality and conditioning that you have right now. Your personality may have a certain amount of greed and ill will or whatever. And you can't step out of that. It's part of you. And you can only gradually develop out of it. And that is kind of the right attitude. To look at these people, they are trapped. Yeah, they're trapped in delusion, lack of understanding. Can't really do any better than what they're doing. And if they have some worldly success, so what? It's nothing. It doesn't count for anything. You know, if you are wealthy or you are just ordinary person, what difference does it make? It makes almost no difference. I have known lots of wealthy people in my life. Big deal. It means nothing. People kind of put much more, make much more out of these things than actually. Uh, we, we really should, uh, because it doesn't do anything for you, for you as a person. Uh.
So uh, look at look at uh, things that really matter. Look more deeply here, yeah? and uh, you will be able to see things in a different way. Yeah? yeah, when people treat you badly, just think of them as robots. Can you blame a robot for doing bad things? What if somebody programmed the robot to do bad stuff? Are you going to blame the robot or are you going to blame the programmer? You're going to blame the programmer, right? Not the robot. The robot just does things. Shoot, kill. Yeah, that's what robots do. And they have no choice. They have been programmed by some evil genius. And then that evil genius is the... what is? But of course, there is no evil genius in reality. They are just robots wandering around. We are those robots. How can you get angry with a robot? The problem is it feels like we are in charge. It feels like we are responsible. Yeah, I did this. It's me. I must be responsible. Oh, no. And then you feel bad about yourself. But look into that. Is it really true? How responsible are you? That feeling, is it really reliable? Or are there deeper things going on that actually are is uh, causing this, uh, to act, causing you to act in a certain way? And if you look carefully, you will see it's deeper than that uh, unreliable feeling of being in charge. Uh, that uh, it's an unreliable feeling, it's the sense of self, which is, uh, the, as the Buddha says, is not really here. Uh, yeah, it is a, it's fake, it's a delusion, uh, it's a problem. Uh. So be be careful here, yeah, reflect again and again on these things, uh, because uh, these are really profound and incredibly useful. Uh, if you get your head around this, you, uh, you know, you stop, you don't really get upset with people anymore here. Uh. You just have to try again, yeah, try to reflect slightly differently, try to understand this idea of non-self, people not being in charge, yeah. Try again and again, never give up. This is what perseverance is about. This is what commitment to the path is about. Not aditana, but coming back to the suttas, trying to understand what is happening here. I don't know if I'm making any sense to you, maybe maybe I'm making no sense at all, but uh, you know, uh, just, uh, just try. Come back next year. Ask me the same question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, dear Ajahn, you mentioned today that one can see part past lives after entering the fourth jhana. Does it hold true for everyone who has uh, entered fourth jhana? How easy is it to enter jhana? <laughs> How many lay people do you think have done so? Is it really possible for lay people? <laughs> um, does it true, hold true for everyone who enters for jhana? It depends on how you use your mind after the jhana state. It depends on what you find interesting. How has your mind been conditioned before? So when you come out of it, what does your mind incline to? And if your mind inclines to remembering past lives, then chances are that you will, yeah, because of uh, the, the jhana states is so powerful. But some people don't incline towards that. Uh, they're not really interested. Uh, and they may go straight to more uh, just looking at the five khandas as impermanent and become arahants straight away. The fourth jhana is the foundation for awakening to become an arahant. Uh, so it depends on the inclination. But if that's where your mind inclines, uh, I think uh, most people would remember, would remember their past lives. Uh, but it's interesting that if you look at some of the great arahants and awakened beings in history, it was a very, very different degree to which they had these uh, psychic powers. The Venerable Sariputta was famous for not having any psychic powers. There's no 
I don't think he ever remembered any past lives. There's a famous sutta where he is talking to Venerable Mahamogalana, and there was this yakka who came and whacked him over the head. Yeah, and then uh, after the yakka whacked him over the head, then uh, uh, the kind of, he was in meditation, yeah, so he didn't even notice. And the whack, this yakkas are very powerful. So there comes out of meditation, and Venerable Mahamogalana is sitting next to him, and he says, "Oh, you, did you feel anything?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and oh, I got a slight headache. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a yakka who just whacked you over a head. If uh, if the the, the, the uh, hit or the strike was so strong, it would have felt an elephant. Uh, yeah, an elephant would have fallen over uh, because of that uh, strike was so hard. But you ha- only have a slight headache. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, the power of meditation. It kind of keeps you safe. Yeah, if you meditate very deeply. Yeah. And then. Um, uh, Venerable Sariputta says to Mahamogalana, says, wow, you know, you can even, you can even see these, these kind of spirits like that. That's amazing. Yeah. I can't even see a mud goblin. Yeah. Mud goblin is like the lowest, the simplest thing to see. You can't even see a mud goblin, something like that. Uh, yeah? That's what he says. Uh, so he has no psychic powers. Uh, so one, one of the monks, Sariputta, he had the wisdom and the depth of meditation. And when Mahamogalana, he had the psychic powers. Yeah, that's kind of what comes out of these, these stories and the suttas. Uh. So uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh. So if you want to see mud goblins, then uh, <laughs> that's, that's the sort of thing you should do, get into the fourth jhana. How easy is it to enter fourth jhana? It's really easy. Yeah? You sit down, let go, and you enter fourth jhana. <laughs> <laughs> It's not difficult, yeah? And this, this is kind of the thing, is that these things are not difficult. If you ask people who can do, go become arahants, yeah? you ask them, well, you know, how, how hard is it to become arahants? It's really easy to become an arahant, yeah? No, pro- no problem at all, really, really easy, yeah? yeah? And the point is that, you know, when we talk about these things, we, we think about it in, in the wrong way. These things are not hard. It's just a matter of practicing the path and allowing these things to happen. Yeah? The reason it is hard is because our mind is not ready. The reason it is hard is because we haven't gotten rid of anger and, and, and desire. That's why it's hard. But actually, it's not hard in itself. Uh, it's really a matter of letting go. Uh, and the problem is we can't let go. But if you can let go, it's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, There's nothing easier than this uh, because uh, there's nothing you have to do. You just have to sit there and it happens. Uh, you ask Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, he's one of the super-duper meditators in this world. And you ask Ajahn Brahm, how do you meditate? Oh, yeah. Sit back, yeah. relax, yeah. Bliss comes, uh, the light comes, bang, and you enter these kind of profound states. Uh. That's how you meditate. Don't do anything. You just sit and wait. Uh. That's all you do. Uh. And then this is very interesting because from that then comes the question, well, why is it that when everyone waits, why c- how come everyone doesn't enter these jhanas? Uh. And that is because your mind is not inclining in the right way. Uh. Your mind is not doing the right thing automatically. Uh. But if you have very profound understanding of reality, then your mind automatically inclines in the right way. And so these things happen. So the problem is really right view, lack of preparation. But if you have that right view and the right preparation, it will happen just like that. So it's not hard, yeah? Um, but it needs the preparation. Can that preparation be done in lay life? I guess that is the question. Uh, is it possible to kind of make these things happen in lay life? And it, it is, uh, but 
It depends on how you live your lay life. Lay life can be lived in so many different ways. Yeah, If you kind of are married and you have lots of kids and all kind of things happening in your house all the time, then the chances are not all that great because it's just too busy and too many things happening. But if you live by yourself in a tiny little flat where you have nothing and all you do is kind of meditate and practice the path and that there are some people I know who are like that or they live in the countryside somewhere and all they do is practice and they are dedicated their life 100%, well, they are almost like monastics already. So how are you living that lay life? That is really the question. Yeah, You can't really divide it up that simply layperson or monastic. Some monastics, they live more like lay people. So it's not so much monastic versus layperson, it is more how you live those, those lives. But generally speaking, monastic life is better suited yeah, for um, for awakening because you have all the supporting conditions there. Is it possible for LA people to attain a fourth jhana? It's possible, but it's very it's unlikely. It's unlikely even among monastics. So how much more so among lay people? It's rare, yeah. These things are very profound. Fourth jhana, you're almost enlightened, you're almost an arahant already at that point. It's so close. So uh, yeah, don't worry about these things. Uh, don't think too much about attainments. Uh, don't think, I want a fourth jhana, I want to be a stream mentor. I want to be a stream mentor, I don't want to be reborn at a bad destination. The more you want to be a stream mentor, the less chances there are you will be one. Uh, gets in the way, yeah, this wanting. And it's so one of the big problems in our society. Just do what is right, uh, live well, forget about results. Uh, one of the biggest problems in meditation, people t- say this all the time, uh, they sit down, they expect things in their meditation. Uh, and that expectation blocks anything from happening. Uh, enjoy your meditation. Uh, whatever you have got happening, just enjoy that. Uh, don't destroy it through expectations. Uh, because expectations will destroy even the fun of ha- you having now. Yeah, It will be gone because you're expecting things. Uh, don't do that. Uh, whatever happens, uh, you can always enjoy what is going on now if you have the right attitude. Uh, and then you will have success. Never expect success uh, because that is just silly. Uh, enjoy everything instead. Uh. Dear Ajahn, please tell me how to overcome the feeling of impatience and restlessness during meditation. Uh, <laughs> uh, many thanks. Um, the way to overcome if impatience is to be patient. <laughs> um, the, the, it, it's just learning to enjoy stillness, learning to enjoy not to do things, uh, but learning to enjoy just being peaceful and at ease. Uh, yeah, That's what it is about. Impatience means that you are looking for something in the future, uh, some, somewhere you want to go, your mind is kind of heading somewhere. Uh, there's nowhere to go, right? The only place there is to go is Dukkha. Do you want to go to Dukkha? It's not a good destination, right? So don't go to Dukkha. Stay in the present. There's nowhere to go, really. There's only here and now. You are expecting something, waiting for something. That is why you are impatient. The mind is driven by craving. That's why you are restless. It's easy to say these things, but this is really what it is about. There is nowhere to go. All there is is the present moment, uh, and that uh, you just enjoy what is uh, here in the present moment. Then you are on the right track. Uh, 
And the more, the better you live your life in general, the more happy the present moment is going to be. Because if you live well and you feel good about yourself, then you want to be here because you want to experience being present. Because being present is nice. It's really as simple as that. Yeah. So just ask yourself, well, what are you impatient about? Is it because you're looking towards the next stage of meditation? Is it because you're waiting for this blooming retreat to come to an end so you can do more important things? <laughs> what is it about? Yeah. And when you reflect like this, you kind of find out where the problem is. Sometimes people meditate so they can have better ordinary lives. Yeah. Yeah. If I meditate a lot, I become a better mum, a better wife, a better daughter, a better husband, a better father, whatever it is, a better son. I become better at my work, more efficient if I meditate well. I can make more money. Yeah, make more money if I meditate well. Don't think like that. Yeah, This is getting things the wrong way around. That is how you become impatient and restless. Because what you are doing there is that you're putting your worldly life above the meditation. You're using meditation to support your ordinary life. It means that you're making your ordinary life more important. And if you're making your ordinary life more important, it means you're going to think about it. You're going to be impatient. You're going to be restless to kind of get on with whatever it is that you want to get on with. Don't make your ordinary life more important than your meditation. Why? Because it is in meditation, it's in a spiritual path that we find a true meaning real end of suffering. This is where we are gradually moving towards real contentment and, and happiness Yeah, by letting go of things. This is the very nature of the spiritual path. And the more you read the suttas, the more experience you have, you start to become very obvious to you. This is what, what is meaningful in this world. This is the meaning of life you're doing now. Why think about the other stuff which is not the meaning of life? And then you become patient. And then you just sit down, you just enjoy what you have in the present moment. Uh, and even if that present moment isn't all that great, uh, it becomes far better if you're not impatient about it. Uh. So, yeah, something like that. You have to, this is all about right view and right attitude and priori right priorities and right values and all of these kind of things. Uh, and it shapes your mind, shapes your interests, what matters to you. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay, okay. How many? Three is good, isn't it? Yeah, three is good. Okay, 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 okay. That's, uh, that's what I learned when I visited Ajahn Ganha. He says, okay, okay. <laughs> Very sweet. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you very much for your wonderful teachings. Thank you for thanking me. When you have time, uh, will you show us how to meditate or reflect on pain we get when meditating? Yeah. For example, a knee pain or pain due to posture with gratitude. Terwan Sadanai. So this is a, a Sri Lankan expression. <laughs> what does it mean again? Uh, triple gem? Maybe with it, okay, yeah. Saranai is Saranang here, okay. So, um, how to reflect on pain? I, I would not reflect too much on pain because I don't think there's all that much to be learned from pain, except that it is dukkha, and that I think you know that already. You don't need to reflect too much to know that pain is dukkha. You know what I mean? 
it's pretty obvious that pain is dukkha. So uh, I, if I were you, I would try to minimize my pain during meditation. A little bit of pain is okay. A little bit of stiffness, a little bit of these kind of things, because that's just unavoidable. It's part of uh, the, having the body. But instead of sitting with too much pain, if that pain becomes obsessive, uh, and you always have to, you know, the mind goes to it. Uh, if I were you, I would change my posture. Uh, sit in a different way here. Uh, Sit more comfortably, have an extra cushion on your seat, use a bench, sit lean against the wall, sit on a chair, lie down at the back, whatever it is, yeah? go walking outside. There's so many different postures you can use. Uh, and uh, that's what I would do if you find that you have pain. Uh, unless you are able to somehow deal with it well and kind of stay mindful, but most people get distracted by the pain. Uh, it blocks you from meditating here. Uh, I don't think there's much to be gained by having pain in meditation, the Buddha doesn't usually talk about pain in meditation very much. The Buddha talks about bliss in meditation. It's the opposite of pain. Yeah, you bliss, and the more pain you have, the more problem, the more difficult it is to get bliss in meditation. So try and bypass the pain altogether. That's the best way to contemplate pain. Yeah. You may, perhaps you think I'm joking. You know, how can you contemplate pain if you bypass? Well, that's exactly how you contemplate it because. When pain comes to an end, when it ceases, uh, that actually you, you learn something about pain. Uh, you learn something about it being impermanent. Yeah, it can always disappear completely. Uh, it is not yours. Uh, yeah, it is not you. It can disappear. Uh, that is really the sort of stuff you want to learn about pain. Uh, you don't have to watch it to learn these things. Uh, you can see it disappear. Yay, disappear and learn something about it. Isn't that much better? Uh, far superior, right? Uh, if you go to the Anapanasati Sutta, which we will look at later on, uh, this is in a sense how the contemplation happens in that Sutta. There's, there's nothing about pain in the Anapanasati Sutta. It's not the, as Ajahn Brahm says, it's not the Anapena Sati Sutta, uh, yeah? the mindfulness of pain. Uh, no, it is mindfulness of breath. Uh. So don't really have to go. I know that in some traditions they talk about watching pain. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I, I never found those people becoming particularly enlightened to watch pain too much. Uh, sometimes uh, people can have some kind of breakthrough, they watch the pain until kind of the both body explodes because the pain is so great they can't take it anymore. But that's a very forceful way of uh, uh, finding, uh, you know, of finding that release from pain. Uh, and there are better ways. Uh, and the better ways, in my opinion, is to follow the instructions of the Buddha you find in the suttas. That is the best way. Uh, and that is to go through gradual stages of happiness and peace. Yeah, Up and up, better and better. That is the best way. Uh, instead of trying to kind of do something uh, uh, in a different way. Uh. So just bypass it altogether. That, would, that, that is my recommendation. So if you have a knee pain uh, or pain due to the posture, uh, let's find a different posture. Uh, sit differently. Um, be patient with a little bit of pain, but not too much. Uh, Dear Ajahn, does sensual pleasure include the appre appreciation of a beautiful flower or the sound of a violin? What about the engineering of a wonderful house or a car? Is that uh, sensual? Um, it depends how you relate to it. Uh, uh, usually, a beautiful flower. It's, it's not, you know. I, I, do you get attached to these things? Do you hold on to them? How? Uh, 
it depends how you use it. Uh, and of course, that is what is interesting in the suttas, is the way that, the, as I mentioned before, some of the great arahants at the time of the Buddha, they rejoiced in nature. Uh, and uh, part of that is because nature is a place where you can meditate, you can relax, uh, you can find a certain sense of peace. It's interesting, you know, I live in a small hut in the forest in Perth, uh, uh, seven square meters uh, and it's the, the reason why it is such a beautiful place to live uh, is because of the nature around it uh, there's nothing there it's just my little hut and then trees uh, the odd kangaroo the kookaburra uh, yeah and the gum trees of course uh, the kookaburra sitting in the gum trees like that old australian song <laughs> and uh, yeah and then the and and the, it, of course a few insects <laughs> that's the downside but there's nothing around me i can barely see another hut from my uh, Kuti, but I have, I have this wonderful view. I can see see the Indian Ocean from my Kutis. I can see a few houses far away on the horizon. But uh, it's beautiful, and it's beautiful because of that uh, seclusion, and it's very peaceful. Uh, yeah, and this is the thing about nature. It draws you away from the generally from the attachments of the world. Uh, the, and if you go to the city, the city is a place of attachment. Uh, the city is a place where you have, get entertainment, where you go to restaurants, where you get a date, yeah, a girlfriend or boyfriend that happens in the cities usually. Yeah. So the cities are a place of sensual enjoyment, whereas the forest is not. It's almost the opposite. Yeah. So that the, the, the kind of the remainder of what is left in the forest, it tends to remind you of peace rather than remind you of sensual pleasures. Yeah. So if that is your attitude to nature, it is not really a problem. Yeah. So is it wrong to enjoy a, a f beautiful flower? Not really. It's not really not really a big issue because you're not going to attach too much, to, uh, you know, too much to it. Uh, so enjoy it. Uh, yeah, it's all right. Uh, but uh, so that's fine. I mean, we need a bit of beauty in our lives. The sound of a violin uh, that is maybe a little bit more uh, uh, prone to attachment because people get attached to music. Yeah, yeah, a little bit anyway. So that may not be ideal. Um, but uh, again, it's not really bad. It depends what the alternative is. Uh, one of the things about sensual pleasures is that we tend to reduce it gradually as well. Uh, yeah, you get rid of the worst ones. That's why we have the five precepts, and you get rid of even more. You take the eight precepts when you go on retreat, uh, but you still have a little sense pleasure. You have a bit of tea and chocolate in the at tea time. You have some nice lunch, yeah, a nice breakfast maybe before you go. Uh, leave home, so it's still a bit of sensual pleasures there, but nothing too much. So it's a gradual thing, and these things are very innocent. Yeah, sensual pleasure, the occasional violin, listening to some uh, Buddhist chanting, maybe if you enjoy that. Some Buddhist monks are better chanters than others, uh, so get get some get the good ones. Uh. <laughs> and uh, you know, and if it makes you peaceful, if it calms you down, then it is actually guiding your mind in the right direction. Uh. If seeing a beautiful flower kind of makes you peaceful, okay, use that maybe to calm down the coarser sensual objects in your life. Uh, so use, use that as a gradual movement towards something. Uh, maybe when you come home from work or you come back from a very busy day, you need something to gradually calm you down. So you listen to some something first of all, even a bit of simple music, violin music, as, as you say here, yeah? And then calm you down a little bit. And then, once you are calmed down a bit, then maybe you can go and meditate afterwards. Uh. But of course, the purpose of meditation is that the happiness you gain in meditation far surpasses any of these happinesses. So ultimately, when your meditation really comes, becomes profound, uh, 
you lose your little bit of your interest in those flowers. Yeah, it's like when you see a very beautiful orchid, you are not so interested in dandelion anymore. Yeah, dandelion is kind of seems a bit kind of coarse compared to a, a beautiful orchid, if you know what I mean. There's a so one thing is just better than the other, and it's the same thing with a meditation. Yeah. So you use these things wisely. Yeah. What about the engineering of a wonderful house or a car? Is that sensual? Yes, well, it is sensual in a certain way because. Uh, Yes, you delight in the engineering, but that is still part of that sensual realm, yeah? So still an enjoyment within that realm. So if, you, uh, if that becomes too important for you, maybe it can become a hindrance, but it's not going to be a big problem, yeah? It's not something you attach to that much. Uh. So just be wise about this. Uh, don't chuck everything out straight away, yeah? And live like a prisoner in a prison in a concentration camp yeah the concentration camp in buddhism is the meditation that's the concentration by samadhi often translated as concentration right that's the real concentration camp but don't make it into an auschwitz which is going to be very painful and problematic yeah does that make sense without sense without being sensual okay 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 Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so next one. Is it true that I am not the one watching the breath? Nor am I. Am I the distracted one who can't watch the breath? Am I also not the one who chooses to try and watch the breath? Am I the canvas on which all these take place? Is my questioning problematic because I am <laughs> inter? I am what is it? Uh, in in <laughs> okay. So um, um, don't worry too much about it. Uh, yeah, just watch the breath uh, <laughs> because uh, it all becomes very complicated and very difficult. And I am. What does it mean? I am. What what is it? Uh, what uh, does it actually? referred to in Buddhism and not in Buddhism. So just watch the breath, yeah? And just enjoy what you're doing, yeah? And whether it is I am or not I am, is kind of irrelevant at this point of the path. First of all, become peaceful, make it deep, make it something enjoyable. And eventually, as you do that, as you practice in the right way, make these things deeper and deeper, one day, hopefully, these questions will become clarified, yeah? In the meantime, just enjoy what you're doing, yeah? So um, it, it's all a bit, uh, the reason why it is um, mysterious is, is because it's impossible to imagine what it means. Uh, yeah, it's impossible to step out of the I am delusion. And because it is impossible, because you can't imagine it, uh, it can only really happen once you have that insight. In the meantime, it's going to be a little bit mysterious. Uh, yeah? Not super duper mysterious, but a little bit. Uh, and so you just have to kind of gradually move towards that. Uh, but one of the things that you will find, and this is kind of one of the most important things, is that uh, as you meditate, uh, as things disappear, the sense of I am is also being reduced. So much of the I am exists in the thinking mind. Yeah, A lot of the I am is there. If you reduce the thinking in your, the internal chatter, your sense of I is also getting reduced. That is interesting. That is really interesting because when you see that, you actually see that the sense of self is a problem because the chatter dies down and you feel better. That's when you start the basic insights that tell you 
that uh, you're heading in the right direction and actually the idea of non-self starts to make sense. And the deeper you go in the meditation, the more things disappear, the more obvious it becomes that uh, you know the I am is a problem. The more you're giving up, the more of yourself you're giving up, the more happy and content you are. I am is a problem. Yeah, You haven't overcome it completely yet, but you're getting an idea, a gist of what is going on. So um, ultimately, don't worry where this ends, because it is really it, it is hard to really kind of get your head around that. But just uh, just enjoy the journey, and if it's so cool so far, keep going. It might get even better. Yeah, even even more, even nicer. Yeah. Am I the canvas on which all of these take place? Well, this is what you want to find out. Are you? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not a canvas at all. Maybe you are just uh, uh, emptiness. No canvas. When a canvas disappears, uh, that might be the best of all. Uh, okay. So just uh, enjoy. Last question for tonight. Dear Anjan, thank you for the powerful death contemplation yesterday. Could you please talk on what is released at the time of death? What is passed on to the next life? Or can Ajahn briefly brief the process of death and rebirth? Briefly describe something. Okay, thank you, Ajahn. Um, so what is re- released? I, I, it's not necessarily anything that is uh, released, but you can maybe argue what carries on Yeah, when you die. And... Uh, uh, released from the body, perhaps you could say, but what is released is basically just or what carries on is just the mind. Yeah, it's the same as the mind you have in this life. That mind carries on into the future, uh, and that is why your rebirth depends entirely on the kind of mind you have in this life. Create a good mind, and you will have a good rebirth because it just carries on into the future. Uh, so it's just the mind, really, the stream of consciousness. Uh, it is called in the suttas, uh, vinyana sota. Uh, established in this life and established in the next life. Uh, this is from the Sampasadhaniya Sutta, uh, Diganikaya 28, something like that. So the mind goes on. So uh, the process of death and rebirth. So the, in, the process is um, it's actually very, it's kind of very straightforward, yeah? And uh, one of the tricks is just to be a- able to let go and allow the process to happen, uh, not trying to force it or to make it any way, uh, any kind of particular thing. Uh, but uh, the way it seems to work, according to sut- the suttas, uh, is that uh, you die, yeah, gradually go through that process to allow things to happen. Uh, and when you are dead, uh, you are still there. Yeah? From, from other people, it looks like you are dead. But for you, oh, I'm still here. What happened? I'm supposed to be dead. But no, you're still there. It doesn't really feel like you're dead very often. Sometimes people are said not to know that they have died. Yeah? You don't realize that, that you're dead because um, maybe you died in your sleep and suddenly you know, just carry on. And you want, and wait a minute, something is not quite right here. You know, what's going on? Where are my relatives? Yeah? What, what is, something is wrong. And then after a while, you realize you have died. That's kind of how strange it can be sometimes. And then when you have died, then a lot of the time you will be in like an intermediate state whereby your karma hasn't really fully taken effect yet. 
known as the, sometimes known as the Antara Bhava. And uh, so this is like called like what they call the Bardo in Tibetan <coughs> Tibetan Buddhism. And that seems to be a real thing here. In Theravada Buddhism, it is often said that there is no such thing as an intermediate state. But if you look at the suttas carefully, I think it's fairly clear that there is such a thing here. Whether you call that intermediate state a new life or whatever, it's all, it gets all a bit complicated. But the Buddha seems to be saying that there is such a thing as an intermediate thing here. And that is where, in a sense, you kind of, your past will catch up with you. Yeah, often people will have life reviews, for example. They will think about what happened in the past life. And that life review is almost like a process of judgment where you judge yourself. Yeah, and you, if you, uh, and it's almost like you are a third person looking at your own life, uh, and then you say, "Oh, I, I lived really well. Yay! I did nice things. Uh, you feel good about yourself." Uh, or you may find that you didn't live so well, uh, and then you kind of uh, feel bad about yourself, and then you, it's almost as if then we punish ourselves, or we, um, uh, you know, or, or we um, do the opposite, uh, and then we have a good rebirth or a bad rebirth as a consequence. Uh, so we are responsible for our own rebirth in this way. And you can't really avoid that. You will have to judge yourself. Yeah, We talk about forgiveness. But this is all a very automatic process. Of course, if you are used to forgiving yourself, that may help a little bit. But there will always be a residue of judgment of yourself. Why? Because the sense of, as long as you have a sense of self, that is what you do. You judge yourself to some extent. That's what happens in this uh, intermediate state, and then uh, you know you, you 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 carry on, and then eventually the time has come then to move on to get reborn in that whatever it is that you go, yeah, your mind kind of carries on into a, a new body somewhere. Yeah. And it, it's interesting in one of the suttas in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya threes, uh, they have this process is actually shown, and the, the way it is shown is that someone dies. Uh, and after the die, they kind of go to this place. This the god Yama yeah, comes comes there, and the god Yama interrogates this person. So, what did you do, yeah, when you were a human being? What did you do? Oh, I, you know, I did bad things. You should, you know, you shouldn't. You have known better. You are a mature person. You are grown up. Shouldn't you have been doing the right thing? What do you mean you did bad things? And then he said, oh, yeah, but oh, please, you know, be kind to me, <laughs> be nice to me, Yama. Yama is like the god of death. And then Yama says, well, you will go to a destination such as befits people who do bad things. And if you read that sutta superficially, it may look like Yama is like the god, like the prison warden of hell that sends you to the bad place. But if you read it carefully, you will see that Yama actually doesn't do that. All Yama does is kind of say, well, you know, how have you lived? Okay, well, the result of that will be bad. Yama doesn't do anything apart from kind of telling you, yeah? And the Yama here, the way I understand this, is that Yama is just a, a metaphor for your own conscience, yeah, your own knowledge that something is going on. And maybe that is how you experience it. Maybe you experience it as a being, being in your presence, but really, I think it's all a kind of mental construct uh, and how kamma kind of ripens inside of us in this way. Uh. So it is always we who judge ourselves in a certain way. So make sure when you come to your deathbed, make sure that you have built up all these good qualities. Uh, so that when you die, uh, you don't judge yourself in a bad way. Uh. You judge yourself in a positive way. And you think, yay, me. <laughs> I have lived well. I've done the right thing. Yeah, yeah? 
And when you think like that, uh, then uh, things are going to go well as a consequence. Uh, so uh, that I think is roughly how the rebirth process happens. Uh, sometimes you may have a very uh, powerful kamma. Maybe you have attained some deep samadhi and then bang, you go off straight away. There's no kind of need for an intermediate existence or antrabhava, anything like that. You just go straight to a good realm as a consequence of the powerful kamma that you have. Okay. So, there you are. Um, that is all for now. So, have another good night's rest and we'll see you again, back again tomorrow morning. Let's just do the Arahang Samma Sambudo together here.